Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 54. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Dewey Halpas, creator and host of the Peer Pleasure Podcast. Dewey was a founding member of the band Anatomy of a Ghost, who were on Fearless Records, and was also a touring guitarist in the group Portugal the Man. But he's best known these days for Peer Pleasure Podcast, one of the more prominent shows in the punk and metal space. Guests have included producer John Feldman, Dustin Kensaru of Thrice, Spencer from Ice Nine Kills, and yours truly. Yes, I was on a recent episode of Peer Pleasure Podcast. Remember, the best way you can support this show is to leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Check out past episodes, as well as the other shows in the Pop Curse Podcast Network, including No Prize from God and Pop Curse. You can find Speak and Destroy at speakanddestroy.com, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. So here it is. My conversation with Dewey Halpas of the Peer Pleasure Podcast. This is Speak and Destroy. to kick these off is to ask um, about your introduction to music in general and as a second part to that question when the moment was or what happened where it shifted from okay this is something that I love that's important to my life to okay this is something I need to participate in I need to create this I need to be more than an audience member okay that's a good. That's a good question because uh, it, it's kind of a, a long, um, long time between uh, nice. both. Well, of that's, those. So that's, like that's what we do here. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in Alaska uh, on a small island uh, called Petersburg. Already, by, already by fascinating. Juno. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, about three thousand people on the island, and my dad uh, managed a grocery store. But on Thursday nights, he would go in and record a radio show called the Big John Show. Um, on this like volunteer based KFSK radio in, in Petersburg that would air Fridays at three o'clock. So, uh, we, you know, have dinner and then do the dishes or whatever. And I just remember it vividly going, uh, I was probably, man, seven or eight, maybe nine. Um, and we'd go to the radio station and I could not be quiet, uh, in the room. So my dad would, you know, when this red light comes on, you know, you gotta be quiet. And after a while, he realized I wasn't going to be quiet. I'd just find the first thing I could do uh, to make noise just as a kid. And he's like, why don't you go sit in this room back here uh, and hang out while I do the show? Because I wanted to go with him. And he put me in a room, basically the room where all the records were. Uh, and there's a record player. And it's basically where people would kind of go through and pick out what they wanted to play on their show uh, and, you know, check it out and bring it into the room. So I would spend an hour, hour and a half, uh, once a week in that room, just picking out records that look cool and putting them on the record player and playing the songs. Um, and I think the first record I put on was Wilson Phillips. Hmm. Uh, nice. that's, yeah, that song that everyone knows. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I was like, man, this is like, like I started like groove to it. Like I had this melody, it had, had, uh, you know, a good, a good beat to it. And, and uh, yeah, it just started branching out from there and then kind of going through my dad's record collection. Uh, I loved like the Cheech and Chong records he had. My mom hated that he had them still. And <laughs> so I put those on and, uh, then like CDs came out and I got a CD player for Christmas and it was like, um, uh, what was it? MC Hammer, Janet Jackson, uh, Rhythm Nation, uh, Debbie Gibson, I think, like all these pop records. And um, so that was like what I listened to because I didn't know anything else. Uh, fast forward, we moved when I was 11, we moved up to Wasilla, Alaska, uh, Sarah Palin country. And mm-hmm. um, once I started middle school, that's when uh, I met Joe. Uh, from Anatomy of a Ghost as well, uh, which we would start much later in detention. And he came over uh, after that one day and brought Green Day's uh, 39 Smooth, and he brought over Kerplunk, and he brought over the Blue Album from Weezer. Wow. And oh, we so o- OG Green Day and then the yeah. definitive yeah. Weezer record. Cause I'd heard, I'd heard Green Day like on the radio, but then when he played the early records and then that Weezer record, I was like, man, something like changed, changed in me. It was weird. And, uh, he's like, do you want to start like playing guitar? And I was like, well, sure. Cause he already did. Anyways, he sold me this piece of shit guitar for way more than it was worth, which we still joke about. Uh, and we would go over to his house and just learn Green Day songs and, eventually we kind of said, man, what if we could tour like these guys, you know, like go out in a van and just, you know, drive around and play, play music. And that kind of became our motivation to like, man, let's see if we can do this. And we literally just practiced all the time, learning songs, writing our own, uh, booking local shows. And from there it just kind of took off. Now let me back up a little bit and ask you what brought your family to a remote Island in Alaska in the first place. Oh yeah. Um, so my dad, uh, was in like retail management, like grocery store management. He was started as a meat cutter, uh, for Safeway, moved his way into management. Um, and then work dried up down here and he got an offer, uh, from a, like a mom and pop grocery store up there called hammer and week on, um, to, to go up and he's like, Hey, this could be kind of an adventure. Uh, always wanted to visit and just took us up there. So I was, I was born in Longview, Washington, so I was six months old when we moved up there. So I still consider myself an Alaskan, even though I wasn't born there. But, uh, uh, yeah, so that's what brought us up there is, is uh, work for my dad. It's like uh, Leslie Nope on Parks and Rec. She was she was born in Eagleton but raised in Pawnee. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, when I think about Alaska, I, th- I think about the Christopher Nolan movie, Insomnia. I think mm-hmm. about the graphic novel turned movie Thirty Days of Night, about the <laughs> about the vampires that go to the town where it's dark for a month. Um, yeah, because it's yeah. a vampire party. And I also uh, one of my oldest and closest friends, uh, probably my oldest friend that I'm still in regular contact with, um, that I grew up with in Indiana, has actually lived in Alaska for the last several years, working for the uh, the Forest Service. Forestry, oh, okay. he's yeah. like a scientist. Um, I can tell you his actual job title. He's the minerals program manager in the Tongass National Forest. Uh, Interesting, yeah. Tongass National Forest, that's over by where I was at on the island, yeah. Oh, I, I thought so, yeah. Uh, when, yeah. You, when you said uh, 
where it was in relation to Juno, I thought I think Juno is the closest to civilization. And it's funny we we have a group chat that's a bunch of us who grew up in Indiana together, and we're all spread out up everywhere, but it goes all day every day. And uh, the joke is always that Reese lives in Russia. So it's even funnier to me when you said Petersburg Island, because I was like, that sounds like Russia. Yeah, it's probably the farthest you can get from Russia and still be in Alaska. Yeah, it's down the panhandle. So it's like a far stretch. And, it, well, and of course, that but, goes back to uh, Sarah Palin, you know, and the uh, the SNL sketch. I can see Russia from my house. Which, oh, my God. Which yeah, gets, which, get, which, was... get, which people think is a real quote from her because it was so ubiquitous from SNL. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something where we had to actually when we were started playing shows, we actually had to petition her as our mayor to um, build a skate park because people were getting in trouble for skating at the banks and stuff like that. And uh, we said basically we would put on some shows and play with our bands if we could raise half if the city would pay the other. And she held up her end of the bargain and is still there. The skate park. You know, who knew who knew Sarah Palin? Uh-huh. Building a skate park. That's she should yeah. she should have put that in her resume somewhere. Might have yeah. won her but some she favor. Threw on something and wasn't crazy at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um Wow. So yeah, so then that becomes, you know, you're playing music and all that. So coming at it from the punk rock side, Green Day Weezer, where did metal enter into the equation for you? Well, uh shortly after that I discovered Pantera and mm. white zombie and ozzy and uh yeah it, it kind of and that aggressive um like i love the aggressive side of punk rocks it was fast but also the melody but i also liked metal because it there's pretty much an absence of of melody to a lot of a lot of it where it was just straight up aggression and i i would used to sit <laughs> they they used to call my hate anthems um <laughs> the guys in the band I was the singer and guitar player because I I was the only one who could sing. So uh, I had to come up with the lyrics. And so I would take vulgar display of power uh, while instead of doing my homework, I would spread that out on the desk. And then I would try to pull lines from the songs and change them enough that it looked like my own, (laughs) uh, which ended up just these fucked up, like, fragmented thoughts into and that so they were like like brutal like I, I wish i saved them but i would literally rip off pantera lyrics to have enough lyrics for the band that was playing like pop punk um it was really a confusing time <laughs> That's i didn't amazing. know what i liked like i didn't know i knew it spoke to me and uh like pantera is one of the few bands that came up to alaska um so you kind of that's where your exposure came from was Ozzy came once a year. ZZ Top came once. Uh, Stunt of a Pilots came. Red Hot Chili Peppers. And that was everyone's favorite band until the next big band came up. Yeah. It was really weird. And, um, and that's, yeah, that had to be, uh, you know, I've another Alaska thing that I think about is uh, Brock from 36 Crazy Fists, who I've known a, mm-hmm. a little bit over the years. And mm-hmm. yeah, always hearing those stories about how popular a band could become coming up there because so few bands did. Yeah, but there's no money to be made. Like it's crazy. Like the the amount of money people would lose coming up there to play yeah. sold out arena shows. I mean, it's just nuts. And it's it's really strange where it's still so far behind the times. Like if if you remember, like back in the day, like first shows, like people took it really seriously. Like okay, this has to be this way. Uh, if I don't have this, I need this. Blah blah blah. There's still that way for little stuff, like little shows where they'll have like completely out of off the wall security 
um, like, oh, can we get you? You know, it's like basically I attribute it playing in Alaska to playing a college show anywhere mm. else in the world yeah. where everything on your rider is given to you. Uh, do you need picked up? Do you need driven back to the hotel? Do you need blah, blah, blah? You're treated like royalty at a college show because they have just disposable funds. Alaska is the same way. Like they treat the smallest show like a little, like when Fishbone came up, like it was a grand to do, but they're mm-hmm. playing for 150 kids at this club called Gigs. Like but it's, they're, but it's they're it's being really taken strange. care of like, uh, yeah, I feel like Hawaii is sort of like that. Like yeah. There's a couple places that, that they don't get many shows, so when they do bring a band over, especially a, a metal or punk band, they they really roll out the red carpet. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, it was it's it's still that way. It's still that way, um, you know. And and uh, to this day, it's it's just a weird spot, but it's it's cool and people are really into things, but uh, they just don't know how to find the balance between professionalism and and uh, actually making money for everybody i i love the thing you mentioned about melody and, and that sort of thing because one thing about extreme metal in particular is that i feel like the guitars and the vocals operate more like rhythmic instruments than mm-hmm. you know melodic instruments mm-hmm. and obviously it depends on what band we're talking about of course a lot of metal is gloriously melodic but there is that yeah that punch and that firepower that that comes in the vocals, especially when you're thinking about Pantera or early Metallica stuff. Like it was really, you know, almost like a kick drum or a snare more than. You yeah. Know. It's like having seven drummers. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's just like an assault, like a drum line. So Metallica actually came to Anchorage, uh, for the first time in 89. And then they were, I know they were there on the black album and, and then they came again in 98 and 99, but they haven't been back since. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anchorage was the only place they went. Now, how, how if a band was coming to Anchorage, how how accessible was that for you as a kid? Oh, it was it was it was easy. Like it it was basically a matter of convincing my parents to let me go. Um, so like uh, White Zombie, they we wanted to listen to the record, and then they listened to the record. They said hell no. Uh, you know, my dad and I went to ZZ Top together. Um, so it was basically just convincing them. So like, I never saw Metallica when they came up to, uh, Alaska. Um, and yeah, like Pantera white zombie wasn't able to go to those either. Um, just because of that. I and mean, my parents would be like, yeah, I don't think so. And I was still young enough to where I was too young to say, you know, I'm going anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember the first time that I, that I heard Metallica mm-hmm. was on the school bus in middle school and it was basically someone had a tape deck on the back of the bus and they were playing they just put the tape in and press play and it was enter sandman and that riff came in and i was like what is that like it was something like i'd never heard it had so much like power to it but they also had melody and it was just like this all-encompassing thing and and they're like oh is this, you've never heard metallica i was like no anyway so i went out and got the cassette um, of the the black album and just played that all the time. It was crazy. Like it was, but it didn't influence me like Pantera, where I was going through like the lyric sheets and stuff. I would just listen to it because I like to listen to it, and uh, it well, didn't influence my playing necessarily. It makes that such a great gateway riff because it's it's Kirk Hammett riff, which was you know arranged rearranged slightly by Lars, and that song is like basically one riff for the entire song. 
which yeah. had, you know, this was coming off the back of, a, of an album prior that was, you know, a thousand riffs per nine minute song. Uh, so it, 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 I mean, it, your story is really emblematic of the way that that song introduced people to that album and the way that that album introduced people to Metallica mm -hmm. it became, mm -hmm. you know, biggest selling record of the sound scan area and all uh, the sound scan era and all that. Yeah. Didn't they say something like it, if the, if they were all broke, they could live a middle-class lifestyle just on the royalties from the black album still. Oh, that's something like that. There's, like there's no doubt about it. I would imagine it would be more than that. And something wow, that I've, I've brought up on the podcast before is that, I mean, you know, from being a professional musician, a little bit about how artist royalties and publishing and performance royalties and all that stuff works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Dave Mustaine, had he never started Megadeth from having all of those co-writes on Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning would, I mean, he'd have to be a millionaire several times over at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible when you think about, I mean, I think what you get paid if, if your songs are performed at the, any of the top 200 shows every year. And every time Metallica plays, it's going to be in the top 200 shows. So, Oh yeah, absolutely. Boom. But Not to mention, you know, to start with, with them to where I could work. I work, started working backwards because then once I started talking to friends about it, they had already heard Metallica and like, well, have you heard these records? And so yeah. I worked backwards from the black album while the black album had been out long enough that they started putting everything else out and started getting shit on in the media. So I just see all the shit was talked on them while I'm discovering their older stuff mm -hmm. as they're progressing. It was this weird, like tug of war. That's a really interesting time to, to come in because, you know, and, and this comes up on the podcast often too, at every stage in their career, there was some type of evolution, some type of transformation that made, you know, made them accessible to a broader audience, but also turned off some segment of their original fans or their earlier fans. And, and that goes all the way back to, you know, Kill 'Em All didn't sound like the No Life to Leather demo, and mm -hmm. ride, ride the Lightning had a ballad on it. How dare they? Yeah. And and so <laughs> you know, it's funny to see people get so passionate about which era where they dropped off. Uh, I saw a conversation on Twitter today about how the Black Album was the end for the band, and it's like here you and I are talking about how that was your entry point to the band. So. Yes, and you know yeah. now from being in successful touring bands yourself, um, how there's always going to be a segment of any band's fan base that's going to find a reason to complain about, you know, the empty can's going to rattle the most. So that, that's who you're going to hear from the most are the people that wish you played more of the old stuff. With podcasts, you were talking about, you know, the, the empty can rattles loudest where with podcasting, Jay Moore uh, has a podcast called more stories. And he was talking about how podcasting is like appointment listening, where you can look and see if it's something you want to listen to. So the, the reviews and the feedback is really skewed uh, because people are choosing to listen to it. It's not like it comes on the radio and they're forced to sit through it, you know. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see that. Uh, it's kind of another topic, but um, seeing how that affects things where, you know, yeah, you got a bunch of five-star reviews, but no bad ones because, you know, it wasn't just put out there for the general public. Yeah, and what's interesting, something I always would point out to bands that I was friends with or involved with professionally, you know, if they would, news would get posted about their band, right? And there'd be 45 angry comments about how terrible they are. And I would always say, look, this story was viewed 45,000 times. 
So that means 45 of those people felt like saying something negative. The rest of them clicked and was like, oh, this band's coming to my town. Cool. And moved on with mm -hmm. them. You know? Yeah. It's, it's not that often that people feel the need to go on the internet to talk about how much they love something. It's, sure. You know. You think of 1% of your your listenership is going to respond to whatever you ask them to do. It's kind of a good barometer, <laughs> you know, yeah, to see exactly. where you're at. And that's like, that's like one of those things with like Yelp, you know, most people I think sign up for Yelp accounts because they wanted to complain about something. <laughs> oh, then, Jesus. Yeah. I close out. If that pops up for something, I don't even go there. I get just get out of there right now. So once you had an opportunity to go back and investigate the catalog further and then as you got further along in your own life and they put out more and more records what did you find were the songs that stuck with you the most man master of puppets is an amazing song uh i i really like that song i like that record a lot uh fade to black i love how it's almost it, there's so much to it like it's the 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 composition of it's insane like the the and listening to that on the record as a whole um is is insane like the fact that they would they would go that route you know you know on such a you know thrash band like it's it's crazy um but like i say i love i love melody you know so um you know i love and i loved one off of uh justice where uh i believe that's on justice um that song was incredible and I would almost sometimes I would skip forward and just listen to the last half because um, I just love where it goes. But um, those were kind of the standout tracks that I really I really uh, enjoyed. I never I was never a shredder uh, or even tried to be on guitar. I was not I was self-taught. So I never like tried to learn Metallica songs because they always seemed too difficult. Um, so I would just go straight for, you know, the the punk rock stuff that I could play and figure out by ear. Um the only thing I would try to learn, like Metallica song wise, were like Nothing Else Matters or uh, like Fade to Black, like trying to play those this melodic parts, those little intros. And, and uh, yeah, so those were kind of the ones that stood out to me uh, the most as I was going back through the catalog. Do you find that, because I've encountered this a lot just in interviews and so on, it seems that bands often gravitate in their daily listening habits towards stuff that is wildly different than what they play in their own band. You know, the last thing they want to do mm -hmm. is listen to stuff that sounds just like them and all the bands are on tour with all day. Um, was that kind of part of Metallica and metal for you was, you know, listening to stuff that was different than what you're actually playing? Yeah. And I didn't understand it the same way either. I didn't understand. So there's like a big shift too, because Metallica, I mean, Metallica almost seems tame now to a lot of what's out there. Um, but as I started, so like when we moved down from Alaska, I turned 18, we moved down from Alaska to Portland to be able to start touring and trying to get signed. Uh, music cha taste changed again to where, um, like there was like a phase I went through where I was listening to corn a lot and like that whole thing. And then, um, but I never understood the screaming, um, in, in anything. Like I just kind of, it didn't make sense to me. It was really foreign. And, you know, like Metallica was like as heavy or Metallica Pantera, like, you know, as heavy as it got. But then once I discovered stuff like Converge and, and, uh, like Poison the Well and things like that, uh, I still didn't get it. I buy the records cause they look cool. And then I would give them away cause I couldn't handle it. Um, and it, randomly I got in a huge fight with one of my girlfriends 
And I literally put on the Poison or well record uh, Tear from the Red, and all of it made sense to me all at once. It was like this epiphany. So um, I would listen to like really extreme stuff from then on, even though I wasn't playing it. So yeah, it's definitely true. Um, it would kind of get me out of my headspace from writing music, um, you know. But then I I really started to enjoy it and wanted to start playing that style of music. I wonder. If there's something there about, you know, those that more extreme vocal approach, you know, maybe there's something there with Hetfield's phrasing and that sort of thing. And, and like, you know, even talking about Anselmo where it's screaming, but there's, there's pitch to it, you know? Yeah. There's, yeah. There's, a, it's got a swing. Mm hmm. That's something like Randy from Lamb of God is uh, amazing at is pitching screams and being able to understand every word still. Even yeah, enunciation. Brutal, yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, people at work will complain if I'm listening to something like they. What's he even saying? You know, and I'll put on like Lamb of God, and I was like, just sit and listen. Like, just actually listen to it, and tell me if you can repeat this line back. And most people can, even though they still don't understand it. They're like, no, I understand, but I, I get what he's saying. And uh, that's another punk rocker that that went towards metal. Yeah, uh, totally. yeah as a joke. <laughs> but, <laughs> But now he's one of the front front uh, front runners. But yeah, definitely uh, definitely like the the melody side to it appeals to a more mass audience. I think for sure, um, you know, Pantera included, um, being able to to have that pitch. So as you were brushing up uh, the last couple of days, what were your go tos? You know, obviously you talked about about Master of Puppets and One and Fade to Black and and, mm -hmm. and Nothing Else Matters. Um, you know, some other, you know, what do you reach for when you're like, I want to listen to Metallica right now? Man, I I really like Hardwired. <laughs> I really oh, think it's a no great record. No like, shame I, in that game. I'm, yeah, I'm right there I, with you. It's brutal, and the production's amazing. Like, that's the one thing, too. Like, the older records, the production's decent, but, like, you know, not having any bass on, on Justice, like, the Hardwired really hits hard. Like, it's and it's really good. Like spit out the bone, I think is is like my jam right now. Like I love that song. That's a standout on that record, um, you know. And and there was a, a period like I didn't listen to Death Magnetic uh, for the longest time. It had been out probably a year, year and a half before I even put it on. Um, and but yeah, Hardwired is is incredible. Like it's it's really good. Um, I also listen to Metallica a little bit differently after watching some kind of monster because you kind of kind of think of what went into these parts and, you know, kind of seeing the the, the human aspect to each of them. Um, you know, there's parts that are you'll hear and then kind of think back. I wonder what was happening when this was written, um, you know, or how many iterations of this happened. But, yeah, like Spit Out the Bone is just a banger. Like it just hits hard. And it's just back to like thrash roots. Yeah. And, you know, Death Magnetic had that back to their roots vibe. But I think the production is so dry, which really works. You know, Rick Rubin would do that with Danzig and the cult and Slayer. I think that dry style of production really works for them. But there's something about Metallica and the density. I think it needs more of that, that warmth and that, uh, robustness the thickness that i think was missing there and i think hardwired gives us a best of all worlds where you get that sort of overall sense of self and identity 
that they mm-hmm. came back around to on Death Magnetic, but you also get some comfort with that. The 90s records, I think, where the production was just so phenomenal from the Black Album to Load and Reload. Yeah, I, I think yeah. You, you get some of that, you know, in the vocals especially, but some of that depth and some of that real power of the, the 90s productions with some of the 80s thrash and, and uh, ferocity. I, I think it's it really makes it a perfect Metallica record for me. I'm, I'm, I love Hardwired. I don't, I don't sure. find that I skip anything on it. Whereas Death Magnetic, as much as I like it, there's a couple songs that I'll skip nowadays. And mm-hmm. you know, Load and Reload, I'm a big defender of those records, but there's songs that I'll skip. And you know, Hardwired is the first record since the Black Album where I don't, I don't skip anything. Well, there's one thing to be said about the Reload and Reload era. That's when I was in that tug of war with after the Black Album where the press is shitting on or the fans are shitting on Metallica for cutting their hair, blah, 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 blah. They've, you know, gone soft. I'm listening to, you know, going back through the records. I remember reading this magazine and going out working on like a, a treehouse for my brother uh, in the yard and putting those, you know, records on and listening to them, you know, on my CD player. The one thing that I think was really cool about that era of Metallica is they started focusing in on the band as individuals to where like uh, they would look at Kirk Hammett's, you know, fascination with horror movies and like showcasing his guitars with like, you know, uh, with the the monsters on them and and kind of showing the tattoos and like the, Kirk's going to be this kind of guy and James is this kind of guy into motorcycles and blah, blah, blah. And it kind of made it kind of gave you access to them almost like a boy band would have like those magazines that came out that kind of like, you know, and Danny likes to do this and Jordan likes to do this. Uh Um, But it it gave you like insight into them as individuals in a way that I don't think had been done before. And that really helped keep me engaged because I liked learning about uh, people like that, you know, what they were into, what they what made them tick and you know, Kirk talking about just his spiritual side. And um, it, it was just interesting. It made them accessible um, in a time when up until then, everything still had that magic to it where, you know, the, the inaccessibility, uh, no internet really like not, uh, not in the way that would really, you know, uh, as we know it, but yeah, it gave it, it gave it just a different perspective. And I, I really liked that time. Um, yeah, I agree with sense. you about that. That's an important point to make about the the more you sort of learn about the distinction between them as individuals. It's sort of like, you know, the KISS personas or U2 or something like that, where they're a group, but they do have each combination of two has certain things in common with the others that they don't have in common as a whole. And Yeah. Yeah, and then you have Lars, the, the worldly dane who was raised by these bohemian parents and then you have hetfield who's more that kind of middle america you know waylon jennings loving hot rod building guy with uh kind of you know a lot of difficult moments in his childhood and then you had newstead who was the the one keeping his ear to the ground with you know discovering bands in the 90s mm-hmm. like sepultura machine head you know really championing a lot of that stuff doing a million side projects being the being the last one out of the building, first one you know first one in the building, last one out, uh, hardworking dude, and then you know and then Kirk as you mentioned with uh, the horror movie stuff and uh, his more sort of uh, 
him and Lars got really into art in the nineties and mm-hmm. you know, all, yeah, all that stuff made them that much more fascinating. And I agree with you. You can start to hear personality in the performances once you are more acquainted with who they are as people. And I, I've loved that they've always had that accessibility. I mean, there's a lot to be said about mystique for certain types of bands, but Metallica has also really proven what can be accomplished when fans are allowed, you know, that kind of fifth member status into at least a certain part of their world and creative process. It makes you yeah. feel that much closer to it when, as a listener. Sure. I think it's, and it's, it's weird too. Cause if you think of a band like tool who stay pretty close to the vest, I mean, they've branched out in different ways, especially Maynard, but, uh, you know, I think Metallica would be just as successful without doing that. But I think, they really provided a really good experience for the fans uh, by doing what they did. I don't know if it necessarily garnered them more, um, but it made it a more enjoyable, uh, fulfilling experience to be a fan of the band than a band like Tool, where you kind of just get what you get, but you're still going to go to every show. You know, um, it made it better for everybody. I think maybe not, maybe not commercially, but um, maybe it did. I don't know. But I, it just for as a fan of of any band, when they go that deep with things, I mean, it's it's great for um, the listener. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your podcast because you've been doing it for a while okay. now, and and a little, you know, <clears throat> you predate a lot. You know, there's always the joke now that everyone has a podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you've been at it a little longer than most, and a little more consistently. What first drew you? into the medium and given that this is speak and destroy uh who are some folks that have been on pure pleasure who would lean more towards that metal realm that people should check out okay um so the reason i started the podcast was kind of a it was a a combination of things i've been off the road for a long time uh like i don't know uh nine years i've been off the road out of bands not going to shows not really staying in touch because i just you know i had two kids uh went back to school for a minute um just kind of living life and music didn't really tie into it in the same way i didn't feel that connection with it um anymore like i listened to it every day and i play but i didn't do any you know band stuff um and i wanted to like bands would come through that i was buddies with and like thrice and those guys like all oh, i would go to every show and um, hang out and I was starting to miss that and like losing touch with people. Um, and so I, I, eventually I was, I was working and I, I, I got an iPhone that had the podcast app and I just kind of started searching names. Cause like the, the podcast, I guess it's kind of like a radio show and I would search out some names and, and, uh, I don't know how this happened, but I stumbled upon Chris Rowe from the Atari's on my Carreras podcast. And I was like, well, I like the Atari, so I'll listen to this. And I'm setting, you know, uh, fixtures in a restroom for this uh, apartment building. And I've got my speaker going and, and it comes on and it's just Mike and Chris talking to each other on the phone. I was like, I could do that. And so I started listening to a few more and it was kind of like, wow, I could probably do this. So I, I was talking to my wife about it and I was like, this might be a cool way to keep in touch with people uh, that I know from the, the touring days. Um, and I like to, to talk to people. And so I was like, I think I might try to do this. And there's a lot of ideas I've had where I've said, I'm going to do this and it never happens. So I told a few people and they're like, yeah, okay, cool. You know, let me know when it's out. 
And so I reached out to like 25 or 30 people and 29 of them said yes. And then I'm like, shit, now I have to interview all these people. <laughs> and I've never done that before. Like I was always the person getting interviewed. I was always the person on the other side of the glass in the studio. I didn't know the audio side. So I'm figuring all that out as we go. And, uh, yeah, so I just started doing it and, and, uh, a few episodes in, uh, I talked to Matt Carter, an old buddy from Emory, uh, who's on the Jabberjaw, started the Jabberjaw network. And, sure. um, he put me in touch with Mike Mowry and we were on a phone call and talked every day since it's, this was three years ago. So, um, the rest was history with that. It was like a really weird thing where I, I just really, and from the beginning, I enjoyed it. And then as it gets older and older and older, uh, I really enjoy the challenge of, of talking to new people and, and trying to put things across to my listenership in a way that will be entertaining for them um, or expose them to new things. Um, and as far as, you know, like the, the metal edge t type things like, uh, Dave Lombardo from Slayer. That was a good episode. Um, I had a lot of fun talking to him. Um, uh, let's see who else I have. I have metal guys on all the time, but I'm trying to think back to specifics. The joke with my show is always like from, from fallout boy to Slayer, because those are kind of the extremes where, uh, <laughs> Andy from fallout boy was on the show, Dave Lombardo. Um, yeah, I've had, you know, uh, Brian, Brian from Corn. That was a good episode. Uh, people really enjoyed that one. Um, Dennis from Refuse. Um, you know, it's, it's all over the map. It's, it's, uh, if I like, if I like what someone's doing, I'll reach out to them and, and, uh, try to have them on. Like I just had, um, uh, Tatiana from Ginger on the show. And that was cool because it was in person and, uh, it's kind of short cause sound check got bumped up a little bit. So we got cut off, but, um, that's a band that's doing some interesting stuff right now and kind of blowing up, uh, in the metal scene. Um, and she was, and I, I love the, the, uh, language barrier too, makes it interesting. It's just another thing to try to work around and, and make it successful. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. You've got that problem solving mind. I can tell of, uh, seeing how, seeing how things work or how they can be, how a challenge can be overcome. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those, what do you read uh, Ryan Holiday's stuff at all? I uh, do not. Okay. He's got some stuff. There's a book called the obstacle is the way. Um, it's just, a, he's just an interesting writer. I heard of him through my career as well. He was on his podcast. And, mm. Um, just an interesting dude. Just a, it's good, good reads. But, um, yeah, I do like, I just like the, the challenge of, of conversation. I mean, if you think about it, really, who, how many people could just hop on the phone with somebody that they've never met and, and make something interesting for an hour? It, it takes, it takes some, uh, some time to, to hone that, you know, and make that something that you can do. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a skill that you have to work at, you know, always, you can never get comfortable with it. You know, um, I, I really feel that if you don't, don't use it, you lose it. And that's where we're losing a lot of a lot of people's attention spans lately is uh, <laughs> it's just text and email. And, you know, sure. Getting on the phone is you almost have to ask, like, is it is it safe to call you right now? Like, that's the weirdest thing <laughs> is uh, can I how about on the phone? Uh, maybe tomorrow. You know, it's weird. Part of the problem is that because everyone's carrying around a little mobile device, everyone's constantly accessible. And it's just it's just different than the way phone calls used to be in the past, because you might get a busy signal. They might be out somewhere. You might leave a message on the answering machine. 
Whereas if your phone is constantly in your hand, you can theoretically answer it at any time, but then how would you live the rest of your life if you're just taking every call as it comes in? <laughs> so exactly. it's, uh, yeah, so that it's kind of a catch 22. And there's also, you know, I love when people call you and you don't pick up and then they text you and they're like, Hey, call me. And then, or they, or they, mm -hmm. e or they email you just tried you on the phone. You know, it's like, you get, <laughs> you get like, you know, hit six different ways by the same person yeah. about what might even just be a yes or no question. Yeah. So it's crazy. Yeah. I try to, I try to reserve conversations for things that I, that actually really need to be discussed and you can set aside the time and, and make it worth everyone's while as opposed to the nonstop array of, uh, people hitting each other for different things because, you know, how many times have you called somebody, not gotten them, waited around a couple minutes for them to call back and then made another call and then the first person calls you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the nature of the beast these days. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, how would you rank the Metallica records? That's something fun I've been doing lately. Man. And it doesn't have to be, you know, objectively what's better than what, but just your personal favorites. Well, I mean, I've, I've, the the Black Album is my favorite just because that was my first exposure, and that sure. I dug into that one the most. Um, and then let's see, I would do Justice, uh, Ride Lightning. Then I would do Hardwired. Let's see, then Master Puppets, and then I would do. Death Magnetic, uh, Kill Em All, and then Load and Reload, uh, and then St. Anger Last. I, I, did, I, did, I can't defend that one. I did not like that one at all. It's, um, I've, you it, know, I, I've heard Frantic in the live setting and appreciated it, and the song All Within My Hands, they do an acoustic version of it mm -hmm. that is good. Otherwise, yeah, it's... Uh, pretty aggressively unlistenable yeah i did i did like the s&m record though um that kind of showcased just how uh, i mean how accessible and and well composed the music is uh for metallica's it's just how seamlessly it went to uh you know a, a symphony setting it was that was really cool um I'm not sure what the take on that is with the hardcore Metallica fans, but uh, I really enjoyed seeing that and, and listening to that. Oh, yeah. I was a big fan of it, and I actually went to the S&M 2 event that they did uh, last September, I think. Man, it feels like a lifetime ago, the way it's yeah. changed in the world. But, uh, yeah, a buddy of mine and I actually went up for that, and uh, it was killer and we said it. we had a great time we actually did an episode of the podcast where we, we broke it all down afterwards yeah I, i'm trying to remember where i heard of this podcast from i think it was it wasn't from chris it was from maori i think um had sent it to me i think because i was i was working downtown so this was a long a while ago but um yeah so i think what you're doing is awesome um you know, it's really, it's a, a good band to be doing something like this on, but I love that it's also just a, a chat yes. that has, you know, it's not just, all right, we're going to sit like a, there's a podcast called like the Signcast, which is all about Seinfeld and they like dissect every episode. Um, and it's not like that. I like that. It's, it's just naturally how Metallica, you know, has made it into your life, what they've done mm -hmm. for you kind of thing. And, uh, 
like I like I sent you the other day where where you were talking to Matt from uh, Ben Sevenfold on that first episode. Like uh, I was listening to it while doing the dishes, and I was I was really enjoying it. Like it was it was uh, a really good chat, and I loved how it just kind of peppered things in here and there. Um, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I you know that was kind of the approach that I took was that Metallica comes up in conversation so often in my circle, uh, my inner circle, and my extended circle. That I thought it'd be fun to yeah put something together that the get you know Metallica is the anchor right so it's like the guests are either mm-hmm. have some direct association or indirect or have toured with them or were influenced by them or influenced them and uh, you know that's it's been fun it, they've had such a a wide reach and impact on people that there's no shortage of people on my wish list so yeah. Absolutely. You could probably talk. Yeah, you could talk to pretty much anyone. <laughs> yeah, they're going to have some some opinion. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Have you talked to someone who hates Metallica? Uh, no, I was thinking about having uh, Mark Mosley from your favorite band sucks on just to do that. Uh, yes, but, uh, you should do that. You should do that or do like some shorter episodes of so, like of, like someone very opposed to Metallica. <laughs> just kind of talk to him about it on like a 15 minute like bonus episode or something like <laughs> What's your uh, problem, man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's that what's that meme where the guy's sitting at the table and there's a sign that says like says something and then says prove me wrong or uh change oh, my yeah, mind. Yeah, change my mind, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, Metallica rules, change my mind. And that's what you should call it just yeah, throw it out there. But uh <laughs> no man, I I like what you're doing and, and uh like I said, it's crazy how many mutual people we have but have yeah, never I, I think crossed it was, paths. It was, I think it was Maori that that um turn me on to peer pleasure in the first place also nice so he's a good good connector in that way he is thanks a lot for having me yeah likewise